Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And again, I want to begin by thanking our fellow saloners who either bought a copy of one of my books or made a direct donation to the salon. Uh, hopefully you've uh, already received a thank you email from me, and uh, please know that you will always be in my heart. And uh, I hope that the same will be true of how you feel about me, uh, even when I mess up and pass along some bad information. Uh, what I'm talking about are my remarks in the last podcast uh, from the Esalen workshop where I was speaking without notes and gave an incorrect picture of the protocols used by the Institute for Advanced Studies in Menlo Park where Myron Stoleroff, Jim Fadiman, and a few others did a significant amount of psychedelic research back in the 60s. And fortunately, uh, Jim Fadiman, who now I guess is almost the last man standing in that group of early researchers, uh, well, Jim is both a friend and one of our fellow saloners. So when he heard my misstatements, he very gently passed along the correct information to me. Uh, so let me read from the recent email that he sent regarding my statement. Hi, just listening to the first few minutes of the latest release from the Big Sur workshop. For therapy, six-week preparation, carbogen, as you described. The LSD day was 200 mics minimum, usually closer to 400 mics, and for alcoholics, up to 800. For problem solving, the scientists had one evening of prep, no carbogen, and 100 mics tops, or 200 milligrams of mescaline. Uh, so, I guess that uh, maybe I was close about the six weeks preparation for the uh, treatments using LSD, but I was completely wrong about the dose, and uh, then I was close about the dose for the scientists and engineers, but wrong about the preparation they went through. My point here is that uh, under no circumstances should you ever take my word <laughs> about anything without uh, first checking on my recollection of the facts. Uh, you know, as for the Menlo Park work that Jim and Myron were involved in, most of my information about uh, that research came from many hours of conversations with Myron, uh, some of which were recorded and uh, are now available in these podcasts, uh, particularly the Lone Pine series. But I also wrote a review of uh, what is one of the few books dealing with that research project, and uh, that is the wonderful little book by Malden Grange Bishop titled The Discovery of Love, A Psychedelic Experience with LSD-25. And uh, you can read a review of that book on the Albert Hoffman Foundation website, which uh, Myron was responsible for at the time when he uh, asked me to write it. However, uh, since I wrote that review back in 2001 and uh, then returned the precious copy of that book to Myron, I didn't have uh, quite all the facts with me and I didn't have them quite straight in my head. And for that, I apologize to you for passing along some incorrect information. Uh, unfortunately, that's probably not the only time I've passed along something that isn't factually correct, so uh, please keep in mind that I'm only the carnival barker. My job is to get you into the tent where the uh, real authorities are actually doing their work. And uh, if you can get your hands on a copy of that little book, I think you'll really enjoy reading about uh, 
how psychedelic research was being conducted in the early days of the new resurgence. But if you can't find a copy, you can still read my review on the Hoffman site, uh, which I'll link to in the program notes for today's podcast, which, uh, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, in particular, I want to thank Jim Fadiman for uh, taking his time to help me set the record straight. Uh, You know, there's already enough incorrect information out there about our community, and I certainly don't want to be responsible for adding to the confusion. Now, uh, today I'm going to take a little break from playing the recordings that were made during the weekend workshop that Bruce Damer and I led at Esalen earlier this summer. And uh, while I don't actually have a solid reason for doing so, my excuse is twofold. First, uh, the talk I'm going to play for you today was given by Dr. Timothy Leary on the occasion of his 63rd birthday. And that age is significant in my life because my father, my brother, and my mentor all died when they were 63 years old. So uh, that age has several layers of meaning for me. The other reason is that uh, today happens to be my own birthday, and I'm happy to say that I've outlived that 63-year-old limit by uh, seven years now which means that today is my 70th birthday. And uh, I'll say a little bit more about that after we listen to today's program. Actually, uh, the talk we're about to hear does have a slight connection to the Esalen workshop in that it was sent to me by Nur, who participated in that workshop and who originally received this recording from his friend Elizabeth Gipps, who uh, made the recording and whose credentials go all the way back to the 60s in the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco. And I'll be having more to say about Elizabeth in a future podcast when I play a 1985 interview that she did with Terrence McKenna at his home. But uh, here's just a brief paragraph in Elizabeth's own words that I've taken from David J. Brown's wonderful book, Mavericks of the Mind. And uh, I'll link to this page from David's book, uh, the one that is now available online for us to read. So, uh, hey, thank you very much, David. Now here is a uh, just a real brief little interesting uh, snapshot of Elizabeth in her own words from that June 1994 interview with uh, David J. Brown. I think that there are more young people aware today than there ever have been in the history of the world, and that the best part of the rave generation is proof of it. Hundreds and thousands of people all over the world, between 18 and 25, are sharing a spiritual experience with tribal overload and huge sensory input. There was a continuity of spirit that got bigger and bigger, and even though many people became yuppies, uh, it's okay to be a yuppie and be comfortable, but we didn't know about that in the Haight-Ashbury, I don't think that they have ever entirely forgotten who they are. But in that time, we really thought that in five years everything would be changed. We thought we would find better ways of communicating, which we have, that marijuana would be legal, and that people would be nicer to each other. That's the bottom line. And uh, as I said, I'll have a lot more to say about Elizabeth in future podcasts. So uh, thank you, Nur, for sending this Timothy Leary recording that we're about to listen to, and for the 1985 recording that Elizabeth also made of Terrence McKenna, which I'll be playing at a later date. So what you and I are about to listen to right now is a talk that Dr. Leary gave to an audience in Santa Cruz, California, and uh, following his remarks are a few comments by others in the audience. All in all, uh, while parts of this almost 30-year-old talk are uh, a little dated, such as the mention of floppy disks and no mention of the World Wide Web, 
which, uh, of course, hadn't even been invented yet. Nonetheless, I think that you'll be struck with how little things seem to have changed politically from uh, those relatively low-tech days. And uh, just to give you a little uh, historical heads-up, you'll hear in a few minutes his attack on the Adam and Eve story in the Bible where he jokes about whether Sasha Shulgin will be coming up with a new form of Adam or Eve. (laughs) And uh, you should know that uh, the play on words there is that uh, at the time, which was 1983, MDMA, or ecstasy as it was then called, uh, was just getting traction in the Dallas scene, and uh, sometimes we also called it Eve, and uh, 2CB was called Adam, uh, both of which made it to the streets thanks to the tireless research of our beloved Sasha. Uh, At least that's how I remember it anyway, Uh, (laughs) which of course tells me that I've uh, most likely maybe messed this up somehow too. Anyway, uh, when I first previewed this talk, I was taken at uh, how relevant his thoughts are yet today. For example, uh, he speaks of the smog of wrong-headed ideas that are inundating people every day. And uh, since this talk was actually given on his birthday, uh, that would have made it October 22nd, 1983, uh, because he mentions the fact that the U.S. Navy is then on its way to invade Grenada, uh, which I think took place just a couple of days later. So uh, that makes these remarks almost 30 years old, and yet, as I said, much of what he talks about remains uh, right to the point yet today. To me, at least, uh, this is Dr. Timothy Leary at his best, uh, at least (laughs) on his best behavior, uh, probably because his mentor, Frank Barron, was in the audience. So uh, let's listen now to a recording made by Elizabeth Gipps at the University of California in Santa Cruz. The topic of my lecture, the topic of the seminar tomorrow, is called The Evolution of Intelligence in Species and Individual. Uh, covers a lot of territory. My function, of course, is the same as it's always been. I'm a, um, I'm an, uh, I'm an iterant philosopher. By the way, now is the time I think I should uh, welcome and pay respects to my oldest and dearest friends, uh, Nancy and Frank Barron of the local faculty. Frank and Nancy, want to say hello? Uh, It's all Frank's fault. (laughs) He was the one that turned me on to the visionary quest. (laughs) But that is my function to... um, The way I spend my time now, about a third of it is in uh, college lectures. I I lectured about 30 or 35 or 40 colleges and universities a year. I write uh, usually one or two books a year. And I'm working uh, on um, uh, software for artificial intelligence, the other third. In my function, or in all three functions, but particularly in my function as a lecturer, it's my obligation, it's my task, it's my duty to um, instigate irreverence for authority. (laughs) Uh, Questioning of authority. to do everything in my power to strobe, uh, strafe, ricochet, bombard the audience with facts, figures, myths, jokes, uh, legends, um, statistics, God, what medicated barbs thrown into your brains. 
<laughs> whatever I can do to remind you, you know, who you are uh, and what your function is on this planet, uh, to remind you, uh, to give you courage uh, to uh, pick up the, uh, the trail again, that you're here to figure it all out, uh, that the purpose of life is to uh, solve the ultimate questions of philosophy and you weren't put here to uh, become docile students or docile workers or docile employees or docile citizens, but to... Um, you know, to carry us all uh, to the next stage of our evolution. Now, um, I've used the term evolution and intelligence, and these are two very hot terms for me, and I think uh, for our uh, species in general. The word evolution is... Uh, you know, even today, the word evolution is a hot, controversial topic. You know, there are probably 80% of the human beings alive today that don't believe in evolution. Uh, it, it is kind of staggering as I travel around the country and as I read newspapers and read scientific journals and, you know, talk to people and find out what's going on, um, that uh, there's this incredible gap between uh, people who are really coming to understand how evolution works and how the process um, has been evolving and still, the facts are that maybe 80% of human beings alive in this planet today don't, have a, don't really... They have been totally brainwashed um, to feel there's no such thing as evolution. And that's one of the things that is, um, is uh, kind of amazing today. The, the, the junk information that we're being inundated with the cloud, the atmosphere, the smog of disinformation, of just plain uh, kind of dumb lunacy that's being uh, peddled. Uh, you know, you watch the news, ABC, NBC, Time Magazine. I mean, they really, you know, Reagan is a certifiable lunatic. I mean, really, you know. Uh, and, uh, Without being partisan here, Tip O'Neill and Andropov and the rest of them are too. I mean, here we are hurtling into the 21st century, moving from the, um, the industrial society into the knowledge information processing society with uh, credible opportunities for growth and, and uh, discovery and change. And um, just saw in the paper today, um, we've diverted a fleet to Grenada. We got another fleet. It's outside Beirut, you know, bombing the Druze. You didn't know we were at war with the Druze, did you? <laughs> you don't even know who the Druze are, do you? <laughs> they have big noses or small noses or what? I don't know. There must be something wrong with them. <laughs> we got another fleet going down to the Persian Gulf. <laughs> Not to mention um, Central America. Well, anyway... Uh, what I do, and uh, I really am in a kind of a tricky position today because I don't want to, um, you know, this is a very sophisticated group and I don't want to bore you or to uh, kind of uh, slow you down. <laughs> On the other hand, um, I could tell you a little bit about what I talk to other audiences about, so you could maybe give me a little coaching, maybe uh, after a while. I'll talk for about 45 minutes. We'll have 10-minute intermission, and then uh, we'll have question and answer period. Bob Diltz from um, 
behavior engineering is going to come up, and I hope Frank Barron will come up too, and uh, we'll, we'll have a discussion about uh, the evolution of intelligence and uh, how we can move the thing forward more effectively and um, efficiently. But uh, I, I'm making a, a tremendous uh, fun of orthodox fundamental Christianity. Now, you know, I do this with goodwill. I have no, you know, I don't have no bad feelings about anything. But I think this uh, crock of uh, nonsense is really something that should be examined. I mean, the um, according to the Judeo-Christian Bible, uh, the entire, I'm, and I'm not talking about Christianity. I'm talking about the Bible. I'm talking about their theory of evolution. That. Uh, how many of you heard me talk here two years ago at that little place um, down in town? Can I have a show of hands? Yeah, okay, well, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit. Um, according to the Judeo-Christian theory of evolution, the whole thing was started 4,010 years ago by a man, naturally it's a man, named Jehovah. And the thing that's amazing about it is that they don't fool around... Um, they just lay it right out. Jehovah is a mean, nasty, vengeful, paranoid, mafia, kappa, condominium owner. <laughs> Says, uh, me, I made it all. I made the stars and the planet and creepy crawly things and um, I made this ultimate Mediterranean resort, Garden of Eden, for you, uh, Adam and Eve. You can do whatever you want here. Go for it. Except there are two food and drug regulations. <laughs> See this tree here? Now, do you believe this? I mean, do you believe this? This tree is the tree of knowledge. And you are fr the fruit of it is a controlled substance. <laughs> and you are forbidden by law to ingest or in any way absorb because if you do, the blinds of good and evil and all the polarity thinking will fall from your eyes. And you'll become a god like me. And Adam said, well, I don't want to do that, sir. And um, Then uh, Joe said, now the tree over here is a, it's also a controlled substance. Um, that's the tree of life extension. That's the tree of um, DNA life extension inoculations. And if you um, mess around with that, if you eat of that, you'll live forever and become a god like me. And you don't want to do that. And of course, um, Adam said, no, sir. Well, it comes as no surprise to you when I tell you that um, the Judeo-Christian Bible is not a women's liberation tract. They lay all the blame on Eve, that um, hip-wiggling Eve. She caused all the trouble. Good old straight arrow Adam would still be in the Garden of Eden if it weren't for Eve. As soon as Jehovah jumped in his squad car and went back to headquarters, um, yeah. she ate of the fruit. The intelligence increased fruit. The... Um, a new form of Adam or Eve or MDA or God knows what Sasa Shogun's name is going to come up for it. The, the new version of the drug that's going to increase our intelligence and 
make us feel the way we should, loving, clear, outgoing, happy people. Anyway, uh, uh, Eve ate thereof and gave it to Adam, and of course, uh, then uh, it becomes like a crime time television show. The sirens go. The first narcotics bust in history is Jehovah busting Adam and Eve for eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Now, I mean, how clear could it get? I mean, it's really spelled out, isn't it? The Darwinian theory of evolution, which came along about 100 years ago, is clearly in a an expression of the uh, late 19th century British imperial colonial empire. Survival of the fittest. The tough survive. The tough get stronger. It's a macho theory. Can't blame them. But um, in the last 10 or 20 years, it's been thrilling to see that the uh, Darwinian theory of evolution is being revised. See, both the Judeo-Christian philosophy and the Darwinian theory of evolution imply that there's nothing that you can do about your fate. Original sin, baby. Tough shit. As Bob Dylan said, you don't know what you did, kid, but you're going to get hit again, huh? You were just, uh, because of uh, what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, you were born in a state of evil, and there's nothing much you can do about it. Uh, there's certainly no encouragement to uh, increase your intelligence, to increase your virtue, to increase your knowledge, to uh, increase your ability to compute and understand the situation. Nor does the Darwinian theory offer you much hope either. It takes 25 million years to change a fingernail or to get away, do away with a vermiform appendix. Um, uh, the Bank of England and the Queen of England didn't sleep, um, didn't lose any sleep over the Darwinian theory of evolution. But uh, just in the last 10 or 15 years, we've been inundated by uh, both theories and facts from the laboratory suggesting that uh, evolution can happen very quickly. The punctuated uh, theory, which is evolved from Harvard, that when evolution happens, it happens all at once. It's not a gradual chance, step-by-step -step thing. But when it's time for that caterpillar to uh, become a butterfly, whap, it happens, bang, all at once. And uh, I know that everyone in this room senses that we're at that moment in human history when um, it is moving, and we sense it in our DNA and in our bones and our nervous systems. We sense it looking around us. Uh, uh, we're getting to those moments, one of those moments, one of those great moments in history when... Um, Evolution is going to happen, and uh, the glory of being alive today, being a human being today, is that we can understand this process, we can participate in it, we can't change it, we, you know, we can surf the wave that is going to come. In the seminar tomorrow, and to a certain extent briefly tonight, I want to uh, summarize some of the tactics of how evolution works. Remember from... From the uh, Orthodox Judeo-Christian theory, you've got no tactics as to how to change your life or to evolve your life because, you know, I could do get down on your knees, baby. That's <laughs> all you could do. Nor from the Darwinian theory were there any tactics um, as to how to, uh, well, what, survive, just get bigger and stronger, bigger Navy, you know, kick ass down the Falklands, right? That's the 
classic British solution. But if we, um, if we begin to find, define evolution as the evolution of intelligence, and we begin to understand uh, that um, how, the, how evolution works and where we came from and the stages that we've been going through, both as species and as individuals, then it's possible, you know, to, to start figuring out some uh, ground rules, some blueprints, some how-to uh, ABC123 um, tactics as to how we can uh, effectively increase our own intelligence. Now, the first tactic of evolution is called neoteny, N-E-O-T-N-O-Y, sometimes called pedamorphosis. It's a very uh, simple concept. It uh, suggests that evolution happens only in the juvenile, the larval, the adolescent, the pre-adult of a species. I'm sure many of you have heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating when you go home tonight. Look up the dictionary definition of the word adult, and you'll be amused and amazed to find that the word adult is the past participle of the verb to grow. In other words, an adult is someone who has stopped growing. By definition, an adult is that form of the species which has reached its final form. <laughs> now, I don't pretend to know much about the, the blueprint. I think it's rather um, audacious and reckless of people in our primitive, really immature, larval state of evolution to speculate with any dogma about where evolution's coming from or where we're going. I know that there are certain stages ahead of us, but to... Uh, make any final speculations is certainly premature and, um, and pompous, but um, there's, um, there's one thing I'm sure of, that the DNA code, the biological wisdom, the Gaia principle, the biological intelligence, God, I don't care what name you want to give her. Um, she, she does not like final forms. She works with, um, with the juveniles. That's why um, I spend most of my time uh, lecturing and talking to and listening to um, people who are, that are not adults. So one piece of advice I'd like to give you, and I don't have many to give you because I'm not that loaded with advice, but one piece of, of, um, of evolutionary street wisdom I'd like to pass on is that all costs avoid terminal adulthood. Nothing wrong with being an adult. Uh, I, I've played many adult roles. Um, and it's um, very easy to put on the uniform. And, um, and um, you're adult when you've stopped changing. So as long as you're changing, adulthood has nothing to do with chronological age. Um, adulthood has to do with, um, with uh, the last time you really reprogrammed your uh, biocomputer. Later on tonight, I'll be defining... I'll be passing on to you the new definition of the human brain. The human brain is a network of 100 billion neurons, each of which has the knowledge, information, processing capacity of at least an Apple computer. So put your hand on your forehead. Put your hand on your forehead, and you got uh, you got your hand on 100. Billion, I sound like Carl Sagan, don't I? Billion. <laughs> Apple computers. Questions immediately arise like, uh, number one, um, 
who programmed your computers? And uh, how were they programmed? And uh, are you satisfied with that one program? Or aren't you kind of interested in, um, in um, changing the program? Um, so when it comes to defining uh, adult, you're as, uh, you're as old as the last time you reprogrammed your biocomputer. And uh, later on tonight and tomorrow, we'll be discussing dozens of ways in which you can learn how to um, reactivate, access, and reprogram, reimprint your biocomputer. Now, there's another technique of evolution, which I'll mention briefly here because it's not necessary to talk much about it here. It's a migration. Uh, you know, for the last 4,000 years, it seems obvious. It seems one thing that's obvious. It's, um, it's the laws of uh, demographic migration, that intelligence, freedom, evolution, the frontiers are moving in an unbroken line from east to west. Next time you... You know, when you look at a map, for example, why do they always have the north up and the south down? Since it's a globe, you know, that's a very tricky and easy way to fuck our minds up, isn't it? Next time you see a map, turn it, you know, turn it so that uh, you know, Australia and South Africa are popping up there. Or, or um, turn it so that west is top and east is bottom. Uh, then you'll see so clearly that um, uh, the farther east you go, the more authoritarianism, the more distrust of the individual, the more collectivism, um, the more traditionalism, the farther west you go. Now, um, you know, when I go back east to places like Boston, New York, Washington, B.C., um, you know, uh, I tell them the same thing I'm telling you. Um, you know, those our lines on the map, they're in Greenwich, you know, Pacific Mountain, Central Town. They're not ours. They are centuries. Washington, B.C. is a Disneyland. It's a museum. It really is. And um, here you are on the banks of the Pacific. You, uh, all of you in this room have succeeded in deciphering the new Newtonian laws of demography, which are a body allowed any sense of freedom tends to be attracted to warm places. <laughs> and the second law of uh, demographic migration is that once set at west, a body tends to stay at west. <laughs> I usually, when I'm, in, when I'm in Newark, New Jersey, I have to say, hey man, you're not going to spend the rest of your life in Newark. <laughs> Illinois, <laughs> from California, where do we go? Well, there are two options. We're going to go into space, naturally. But also, um, Japan is, is emerging. And as, as we'll talk later on tonight, and perhaps in the second half, we get into artificial intelligence and the fifth generation and the new concepts of knowledge information processing as the goal and the definition of human nature, we'll realize that Japan is doing some very interesting things. And in a funny way, individuality, creativity, and uh, uh, intelligence is emerging in Japan, and it's wonderful 
to have a country like that as our allies in our, as we look around the rest of the globe, there's one country that isn't interested in, you know, fighting in the Falklands or the French are sending Exocet missiles to, who the Iraqis, and uh, every country in Europe's got some uh, lousy cheap arms game going, but you'll notice the Japanese are interested in one thing, knowledge processing and intelligence processing. I think they're looking for us in this country to, uh, to uh, join them in this enterprise. So I don't have to uh, urge you, or I don't have to tell you what I tell other audiences in the East, that if you find yourself depressed or blocked or neurotic or feeling that you're mobile and not moving, you know, don't blame your parents or your race, creed, or color, or whatever it is, you know, move. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that most of you uh, won't spend the rest of your life in Santa Cruz. Uh, Santa Cruz uh, is a fat, is one of the most... I think it's one of the most interesting cities, towns in the world. I wouldn't call it fast lane, <laughs> but uh, it's a, uh, a a pulsing generator of um, of high intelligence and uh, and higher consciousness. What I'm going to mention now is one of the most interesting things I've learned in the last year. It's the concept of generation. I first read about this in a book by uh, Landon Y. Jones called Great Expectations. It's the concept that the generation now that you belong to is probably the most, one of the important things in your life. Have you ever watched, you know, as you drive along or as you walk along or as you swim along, you look up in the sky or you float along or <laughs> God knows how you get around here in Santa Cruz. <laughs> As you levitate along. <laughs> you notice how a flock of birds moves? You know, and incredible, we've all been totally entranced at the way. Or a school of fish. Well, uh, that's the way to think of generations. Um, and uh, just for a show of hands here, uh, I'd like to have a show of hands. How many of you in this room were born between the years 1946 and 64? Could I have a show of hands? Yeah. See, we're doing... Um, you're members of what's called the baby boom generation or the... Uh, the post-war generation or the post-Hiroshima generation or the first um, knowledge, intelligent processing information. You're, you're a different species, I think. Most everyone agrees about that. Because uh, until you guys came along, we didn't understand how important generation is. The very fact that you belong to this generation means that you are a member of a flock that's moving. And just like those birds in the flock don't even know they belong to that flock. They don't even know sometimes why they're moving, but they are moving. And that's the way to understand your generational power. Because what happened in 1946 until 1964 is one of the great miracles of uh, recorded human history. Something almost impossible happened. The birth rate doubled. And uh, instead of about 36 million of you, we got 76 million of you. That's 40 million more mouths and bottoms than we'd expected. You know, the demographers said uh, in industrial societies, birth rate is going down. So they figured after World War II, G.I. Joe would come home, you know, flam bam, a few, uh, few babies would be born, but then it would drop. That did not happen. There were, during those 18 years, there were 76 million of you born. Now, you simply can't let loose... You can't let loose that, that number of people without totally changing a, a culture. And you have. So you've totally... The history of the last half of the 20th century is the history of the baby boom. 
And at each stage of your career, you have changed society in exactly the way it had to be changed to fit your needs. And why do I say your needs? Because you're a different generation. You're the Dr. Spock generation. You're the demand-feeding generation. Now, I know Frank probably remembers. Uh, I remember um, after World War II, we all read Dr. Spock. Dr. Spock said something that's so amazing. And, of course, he was just an instrument. He probably didn't know what he was doing. He was just... He was expressing, as Bob Dylan did and John Lennon did, and you know, as we all do, he was simply expressing a message that had to be spoken. But he put out lines that are absolutely staggering in their implications. He said, treat your children as individuals. <laughs> you know, for two or three or four thousand years, did you know Christian Bible and saying, your children are born sinners, mean, horrible animals. Beat them, knock them, club them, ABC, catechism. My father, oh my God, you know, Hail Mary, beat them out, they're animals. You know, treat them as individuals. They went uh, totally against every precept of uh, religion, of human nature. He also said, um, you know, uh, feed them when they're hungry. <laughs> Now, right there, that was, a, that was a prelude. That was a precognition. That was an anticipation of the move from the industrial society to the uh, uh, knowledge society. In an industrial society, you're goddamn right. You've got to feed them at 8 o'clock. You've got them at their factory at 8 and 9 o'clock. You've got them to be there till 12, 12 to 12.30. You, they can eat, and then they get back on that line. Then they go home at 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock, bang. They drink that six-pack of beer. They go to bed at 9 o'clock there in the morning. They're back there, right? This demand feeding, the drug of course, the drug of choice is booze. Because uh, you know booze uh, isn't going to, you know, you're going to feel so bad the next day when you're welding. You're not going to be thinking about alternate realities. <laughs> Visionary quest, Joseph Campbell. What? <laughs> I mean, really? You were the first post-Hiroshima generation, the first generation that knew in your bones there could never, never, I'm sorry, Ronnie and Tip O'Neill, that there will never be, can never be another world war. You were the first electronic uh, generation. When you left the crib, crawl across the room, when you were three, four, five years old, your chubby little baby hand, started working with the boob tube, started dialing and tooling realities. By the time you were five, you would experience more realities, more perspectives, more historical landscapes, more dramas, more melodramas, more comedy, more, you name it. You experienced a hundred times more of life's possibilities than the most widely traveled, sophisticated uh, sultan emperor of the uh, preceding century. So um, the history of the uh, 50s. 50s is just your your generation, you know, that goofy, uh, oh, because it was all for you. Wheaties are the Brexit champion for you. Pepsi-Cola for you because you're the champ. Uh, no, Coca-Cola because you're the best one on the block. Davy Coonskin caps, right? You know, uh, we did it all for you. We doubled the uh, nursery schools. We doubled the, uh, the hula hoop factories. When you got to uh, high school, you double the high school, you double the colleges, that big boom, the enormous boom, you know, in, in education in this country came. The, 
in the mid-60s, 70s wide for you. They talk about the 60s, you know. The 60s is a concept that really doesn't exist except, you know, if you say, oh, yeah, the 60s. Well, thank God the 60s are over. Jeez, you know, what an insane time that was, right? People are running around, you know, being themselves. Uh, <laughs> the 60s is simply the time when the baby boom generation hit high school and college. And you were trained for excellence. You were trained to expect the best. You were trained uh, to be treated as individuals. You weren't going to be pushed on. So naturally, you didn't want the uh, old hypocritical sex mores of when co-eds were locked away like nuns. Uh, and there were two ways of uh, fucking. Face-to-face uh, -face lights on missionary when you're married or none. And um, um, you were not about to accept, as good consumers, you were not about to accept... Uh, that sleazy war in Vietnam, you know, nor the draft. Um, so that the 60s and 70s were a time when you simply, you simply burst through American culture, changing every aspect of it. So that you look around now, and Wall Street brokers have long hair, and you can wear whatever you want, and talk about unisex, multi-sex. My God, it's uh, it's whatever you know, whatever. Uh, we're certainly shaking it up. You know what? The 60s. What your generation did, and nobody gets any credit for that. You had no leaders. Dylan was right. Don't follow leaders. Watch your parking meters. Uh, the total, the total genetic avalanche, tidal wave of, of, of expectation for excellence and change and something new. There were no, no one was telling you what to do. There were a few of us around the sideline acting as cheerleaders. But what you did, you took the jo Johnson-Nixon administrations at the height of American power and influence. You simply turned it upside down. They simply couldn't deal with it. Uh, 76 million people, you know, wanting to think for themselves. Now, the 70s was a period when uh, this generation kind of settled down to um, get jobs, pursue excellence, learn crafts, learn skills, have children, uh, or not have children, um, get your head together. Uh, this tremendous boom in the 1970s in what? Personal health, personal fitness, all these gurus, swamis, est, uh, you know, you name it, uh, Arika, there were a thousand different ways of improving yourself. Inner potential, inner potential, yeah, that's the key, inner potential, a life of growth. A life of uh, development, a life of change. That was the, that's the bottom line to it. And, of course, you were, you were sampling the different ways, the different methods of, uh, of a change. And, you, 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 of course, you got into funny places, put on funny costumes, and made an ass of yourself at times. So what? That's uh, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Uh, learn as you move along. The interesting thing about your generation is, and this is the profound thing that uh, must be confronted tonight, your generation has had no political influence whatsoever. The reason for that was because you were too young. In, 19, um, in 1966, you were between the ages of 2 and 20. You couldn't, you, 68, you couldn't, you couldn't possibly, uh, you could protest and get beat up at Chicago, but you weren't old enough to vote. The, uh, the 19, uh, what, 1976 election, that was what, that was, um, Carter versus, what was his name? Yeah, right. Uh, that didn't excite young people. 
in the uh, 80 election between uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, Jimmy Carter, you know, the hype, the propaganda, the straight-out media lying. They say that there was a, a Reagan landslide. Reagan was elected by 27% of the eligible voters. That meant that Reagan were running against none of the above. None of the above would have got 73%, and Reagan would have got 27%. Something like that. And one thing that was very interesting about the uh, 80 election, young people did not vote. As a matter of fact, a certain percentage, I'm not totally sure, but I think most, many young people voted for Anderson, right? Yeah. Simply because uh, you were not interested in the old partisan politics of dinosaur donkey Democrats like Tip O'Neill and... Uh, Dinosaur elephants like Ronald Reagan and uh, Alexander Haig and so forth. I want to say two things before I stop for intermission about uh, other generations. Uh, I don't want to um, leave anyone with the uh, feeling that I'm uh, uh, trying to um, set up a generation gap here or um, pose older people against younger people. I repeat it, and I'll repeat it again, and I'll repeat it several times before the night is over, you are as old as the last time you reprogrammed your brain or changed your mind. You're also as old, you're as old as the people you hang out with. I mean, at the end of a week, just add up the people that you really hung out with. Now, by hung out with, I don't mean if you're a teacher lecturing to people. I'm not talking about Ronald Reagan in the Rose Garden giving a sermon to a Girl Scout troop from Mississippi. I wouldn't call that hanging out, Ronnie. I mean, you know, getting on down, you know, looking at each other and learning from each other and really eyeballing it and uh, learning, really learning from each other. Um, you know, in a sense, here's how I see it. You know, and this is uh, probably a wide-eyed, druid, <laughs> hallucinogenic, intoxicated Dublin uh, vision, Frank, that I see each generation... It's like a flock of birds up there, you know, and, uh, and uh, I think, you know, you can jump from one flock to another. I have a great time uh, talking to people that are my age and older. We can talk about World War II. We can talk about, um, I can talk about alcohol prohibition <laughs> and speakeasies <laughs> uh, with great fun. I, you know, I, uh, I enjoy every second of it. I, I think it's possible. There's a new concept we're working on. There's a concept of geographical migration. Like, you're born in Sicily, you know, and you want to get freedom, you want to grow, you want to evolve, so you get on that boat and you come to New York or you come to San Francisco. Or it's our duty, really, to kind of, uh, just as you mo move from, you go to India, you go to back east to Boston. I mean, it's our duty to learn from each other from different generations. And there's another generation I haven't mentioned, and I've got to, and it's those that are born after 19... 64. Remember, the baby boom lasted for 18 years, 1946 to 64. 1964, zap, the baby bus started. How come? How come? Certainly people didn't stop making it after 64. Well, you need to figure it out. By 1964, the first cohort, the first wave of the baby boom generation had reached the age of 18. And for the first time 
I don't know, maybe in human history, I don't know, maybe the Egyptians did it, I don't know, but for the first time in a long time, the members of your generation did not conceive blindly. They did not breed blindly. Automatically, you see, before that, for thousands and thousands of generations, the minute you got uh, a woman or a girl got to that period of puberty, the minute a boy dropped those testicles and got hair in his arms, got that big light boy-girl, bang, 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 started breeding blindly, rut animals. Your generation is the first generation in history that had demand breeding. <laughs> you know, the average, the average uh, baby boom couple said, well, um, should we have a baby this year or maybe the wife will finish law school or medical school or let's buy the Porsche and we'll have the baby the next year or <laughs> let's go around the world or... Let's take a year off and just vegetate in Santa Cruz. <laughs> Definitely a deliberate uh, program to uh, make us feel depressed, make us feel uh, that the apocalypse is coming and there's no... And anyway, it doesn't do any good. You know, if you don't have Reagan, you're going to have Mondale and, my God, you know, or McGovern or what. So the whole message... You're being given that message in every newscast, in every article, in every editorial, in every magazine. It does, and there's nothing you can do about it. We're all screw blued, and tattooed. Now, that's not accidental. Uh, and I want to give you some good news. I'm traveling around the country a lot, and uh, I really talk to literally thousands every month of uh, people like this, and we have long question-answer periods and debates, as we will tonight. And I want to tell you that... Uh, there are 20 million, maybe 30 million, maybe even 40 million. I want to be scientific here. Reasonably intelligent, enlightened people in America. Now, I'm not talking Buddhas, you know. Uh, I'm talking to people that have that basic sense of, of multiple reality, yeah, that you can change your program. And okay, you were born an Arab, or you were born a Jew, or you were born a Catholic. That's all right. I can dig that. I can put that program and I can pull it out. But God, I'm not going to run my whole life. I'm not going to kill you and everyone else on the basis of that old program laid on my that little floppy, sloppy disk that some primitive uh, person 4,000 years ago laid on the, you know, this, uh, there's that basic wisdom. The, the, uh, the younger generation today, they're not conservative, they're not liberal. They're basically realistic, they're basically practical, they're basically good-humored, they're basically open-minded. Now, I'm not just slathering you with goodwill and buttering you up and uh, stroking you, because there are probably just a higher percentage of assholes among you as any other generation. <laughs> but it's that flock of birds, see? You don't even know, but you're moving, and you're moving in the right direction, you're moving away from the narrowness and the polarity and the hatred and the single programming of the past. So we're in the golden age of human civilization, particularly in America and particularly in California. We're in the golden age. We're aware of a lot of the problems, but at least we're aware of them. We're in the golden age, and in the last half of this program, with your help, we'll figure out a way that within two or three years we can take this thing platinum. Thank you. Okay, I heard, I heard Dr. Leary speak at the University of Rhode Island in uh, 
1968, and uh, I'd like to say I'm really glad to see that you're still fired up. Um, but my question is, um, Dr. Leary, do you still recommend the use of LSD? I mean, you, you can. <laughs> the question is, uh, do I still use, uh, recommend the use of LSD? I have never recommended the use of any drug. Um, <laughs> I personally have used and intend in the future to use any and every drug available. Uh, I intend to do this intelligently, prudently, thoughtfully, always, hopefully, as part of a life plan. Oh, I may slip now and then, you know, I may take a toot too late and bore someone at three in the morning, which... Or I may have an extra martini on Friday night and make a vulgar ass of myself. I've been known to do that, right, Frank? I have a brief question. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I don't ad I, uh, advocate uh, the use of drugs for anyone. Number one, there's no drug problem in America today. There are a million problems, but the, the problem of... Um, uh, particularly, there's no illegal drug problem. You know, the thing about Nancy Reagan, Nancy's image went down because of all the designer gowns. So the PR people said, Nancy, we've got to do something to raise your image, so we're going to give you, we're going to give you your own war. <laughs> she said, oh, goody, my own, my very own war. Who, the Druze? <laughs> no, we're going to give you a war on people that won't fight back. <laughs> Just young Americans. <laughs> I don't know how much we want to get into to drugs. I, I, I really seriously believe that the average person in this room is more sophisticated about drugs and can use drugs intelligently and can make selection and, and use the options that are there a uh, hundred times better than we PhD psychologists could 20 years ago. Uh, uh, I have total confidence in uh, young people's ability. Now, in any group of people, there are going to be 10% of people who are losers. You remember when you were in junior high school or in high school or in college, you can look around your neighbor, you know, there are some people that are simply going to fuck up. <laughs> They're going to fuck up with money or with kiting checks or with gambling or with sex or with God knows what, you know. They're going to... They're going to... And drugs are an easy way. But um, So the 10% of the people who screw up, it's, it's not the problem of the drugs. Like I knew John Belushi. He was at my house three days before he died. And John, he's a lovely, wonderful person, but he was headed like a 10,000-ton truck towards disaster. You remember that um, animal house where the sorority girls said, that boy is a P-I-G pig. Remember that? Well, that was John. He really was. He was, he was food, marshmallow, uh, experience, music, bumping, dancing, bodies, Liquor, wine, whiskey, drugs, you name it, that was him, so it was not drugs. Um, but I don't know, I don't advocate, never have advocated any. Uh, I'll say one more thing about drugs, and then let's not talk about drugs anymore. Let's talk about, let Frank can, but let's talk about computers. The sensible thing to do about drugs is this get yourself a really good dealer. I mean, you know, if you had a toothache, you, some slimy character in an alley said, hey, man, come here, I got it, I'll take you. You wouldn't go in an alley, you know. If you had, wanted your appendix out, you know, you wouldn't, uh, 
some, some guy in a, down on the west end, east end, you know, and a, you know, you wouldn't go there, you know. Uh, um, more important than your lawyer. How do you find a lawyer? You go to your friends, you check them out, you talk to him, you know, you experience, you, and you check, you know, you check him out. A dentist, oh, you, what, a dentist, you just lose a root canal, right? Uh, but a dealer, you know, is the most important. He's, he's going to be influencing your brain. And um, I'm not urging, urging anyone to take drugs. I'm saying if you take drugs, use the same intelligence there that you would if you're going to have a masseur or an, an orthopedic doctor or a, or a, a gerontologist. And let's be frank about it. Drugs are neither good nor bad. They are. And there are going to be more of them, and all the indices of use are going up and up and up, and they're going to continue to go up because they're moving from the industrial society to the brain society. And there are going to be more and more better drugs than Sasha Shogun and people like um, uh, Bruce Eisner and uh, his friends are, are uh, involved in research. So, um, But don't abuse drugs. Please, please don't abuse drugs. And more than anyone else in the world, I'm against the abuse of drugs. Number one, because I'm going to get blamed for it. <laughs> Frank, I'd like to have Frank talking. Well, I have a brief question. I don't want to buck the line, but this will take only a second. Uh, Tim, you can construe this as related to your views of evolution, if you wish, but uh, do you think Adam has a future? Uh, yeah, this is, this is uh, not so much as a question for Tim, but uh, I guess a, maybe a generational question, but how does it... How does it feel to be uh, 63 years old tonight? I don't know if anybody was aware of it, but uh, tonight's Tim's birthday. Ten years ago, in my 53rd birthday, I was in the visiting room of Folsom Prison. And my birthday cake was a candy bar with a match on it. <laughs> and uh, 1970, 1971, my birthday was in um, Algiers. Eldridge Cleaver gave me a 45 Magnum, <laughs> which I immediately gave back to him. <laughs> so, um, looking back over my birthdays, this is one of the greatest of all time, and I thank you for sharing it. Um, a lot of what Tim has said tonight seems very complimentary to the people, I guess, of my generation. And I think a lot of it's right on. I'm really glad to hear it. But I can't help think about the 95% or so people in the world who won't inherit this particular way, for whatever reason, circumstances or inability or narrow-mindedness or whatever. And maybe it's some stale old democratic uh, values in me, but I'm wondering what we should think about that. Hey, uh... The function of America, America, the North American continent, is a genetic experiment for the rest of the world. Right now, there are still millions of immigrants coming to America every, every year. Uh, so when I talk about California, when I talk about coming west, um, the gene pools from all over the world are still squirting and spurting and pushing their uh, ambitious uh, ones here. You know, the Nobel Prize was won... Uh, by an Ameri by Amer Americans uh, last week, three, two of them were immigrants. Wasn't that wonderful? One, one was a uh, Indian, and one was a uh, Chinese uh, Canadian. The point I'm making is that what America is supposed to do is invite 
freedom people from all over the world to come here to join us, keep our borders open, and build a society of intelligence and uh, knowledge and openness and success and productivity that will, uh, you know, they, they want to, we don't want to conquer them. We don't want to run around disestablishing them in their countries. Uh, we can't get involved in their um, wars. You know, Reagan's running around. Uh, you know that Reagan wants to be on the side of every right-wing government and every little banana republic in the country. I mean, he's, uh, he's against the Druze and he's for the, what are they, the uh, phalangists, or you, you name it. You can't even keep the score. I mean, that's, America's not supposed to be that. America's supposed to be the island. America's supposed to be the free place where anyone can come. Uh, black, green, white, even Irish, uh, wild Irishmen like Frank and I are allowed in here. We're the global experiment to, um, to uh, show the rest of the world to join us. We're going to take the whole, we're going to take the whole planet ship higher. <laughs> That's our function. Does that satisfy you? Well, not everybody will make it. What do you mean make it? What do you mean make it? Um, sure they're going to make it. When we come back from space in 5,000 years, after we've taken um, Roy Walford's longevity pills, right? We'll come back to the planet Earth to pay a visit to the old territory. Ralph Nader will be the chief forest ranger. <laughs> In Tehran, the Shiites will still be fighting the Sunnis. In the Gulf of Persia, the Persians will still be fighting the uh, Arabs. In the Golan Heights, the, the, uh, they'll still be fighting. In, in Belfast, unfortunately enough, the Protestants will still be fighting the Irish. They want to do it. They want to do it. You know, there are 200,000 people from El Salvador and L.A. County, my county alone right now. Who are they? They're the peace lovers. They're the ones who were smart enough that didn't want to be on the side of the Catholics or the... Can't keep the score straight there. <laughs> or the fascists. Yeah, uh, they're going to survive. And they're going to produce... Uh, uh, we, I think of gene pools here. And each gene pool produces its... Um, it's uh, uh, members that are going to keep it going. We're doing it for everybody. We're doing it for everybody, aren't we? <laughs> Noah's Ark, we're doing it for everybody, right? <laughs> we're all one unified life biological system, aren't we? We're one tree of life, aren't we? You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, as uh, much as I'd like to think that Timothy is correct about the function of the United States, I'm afraid that I'm going to have to come down on the side of reality here and uh, state the obvious fact that to achieve his dream of a unified consciousness of freedom, uh, well, we still have a very long way to go. But at least you and I are heading in the right direction, I think. Now, I realize that a significant number of our fellow saloners are much younger than the baby boomers that Dr. Leary was talking about here. But uh, as he said, with a cohort that large, uh, we simply must pay attention to them. Uh, and for what it's worth, I'm not part of that generation. I'm actually a little older than the boomers. But nonetheless, I still think of them as the children of the 60s, the ones who demonstrated uh, in order to end the draft, to end the American war in Vietnam, and uh, to begin the long and uh, far from unfinished struggle for civil rights. Those struggles, of course, uh, continue yet today, but we have a lot to thank the baby boomers for in building some momentum on the equality fronts. 
But now, uh, if they aren't careful, these uh, old and gray boomers risk losing all of their gains by becoming cranky old people who seem to be forgetting that the world, as always, actually belongs to the young among us. Uh, Not necessarily the young in body, but the young at heart. And uh, as you probably guessed, I also really like that part about him saying we should avoid terminal adulthood at all costs. (laughs) Uh, That's why I like to hang out with you, because uh, even if I get a little corny or goofy or tell an exaggerated story once in a while, well, that's what kids do, and uh, you let me get away with it. I suspect, probably, because uh, you too are a kid at heart. You know, recently I've uh, heard from some of our fellow saloners who are as old or even older than me, and uh, it seems like we all still feel uh, about 15 years old inside, uh, at least once in a while. Uh, Of course, the outside is another story, but uh, (laughs) we're not going to go into that, which I'm sure is a great relief to everyone. Now, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, today is my 70th birthday. And uh, just to get this out of the way, no, there is no way that in my wildest dreams, uh, even as recently as my 60th birthday, that I could ever have imagined that uh, this is what I'd be doing today. But on significant days like this, uh, well, I like to be with a few of my close friends, and uh, that now includes you and the rest of our saloners. Uh, In fact, uh, being here with you in the psychedelic salon today is exactly where I most want to be. And uh, so I'm going to close with a little remembrance about someone to whom I owe a great deal, my maternal grandmother. But to get to her role in my life, I'm first going to take you on a little uh, hyperlinked trip. Uh, I don't know about you, but you've uh, maybe found yourself sometimes thinking about something totally unrelated, uh, at least so you think, uh, unrelated to what it was you started thinking about uh, just a little earlier. Uh, Sure, uh, we all do that, and uh, that's what I mean by a hyperlinked trip. Uh, While the beginning and ending seem pretty far apart, they are uh, nonetheless linked together in some way. Now, during the last years of my mother's life, I usually sent her flowers on my birthday as a way of saying thank you for bringing me to life. Uh, After all, I had very little to do with it, and uh, she risked a great deal. Uh, The doctor had warned her to uh, never get pregnant due to her severe epilepsy and the uh, powerful medicine that she had to take constantly to keep it at bay. But nonetheless, she and my dad ignored the warnings, and uh, after about six years of marriage, I was on the way. And during my delivery, my mother suffered a grand mal seizure, and it took them over eight hours to uh, stabilize her after I was born. But uh, that all turned out fine, and my birth ultimately had no serious impact on her health. Uh, Nonetheless, I always recognized the risk that she took for me, and so I always tried to thank her for uh, my birthday. Now that's one part of my little story here. Part two begins with an encounter that I recently had on Facebook. As you uh, probably realize, I don't actually know, uh, in person, most of my Facebook friends. So when someone sends a friend request, I accept, and uh, then I go to their page and read a little about them. So the other day, when a request came in and I went to her page, I realized that this was not only someone that I had heard about before, but a person who was one of my personal heroes. You see, uh, for most of my adult life, I've been deeply fascinated by boats and ships in the sea. While I was in college, uh, I read Josh Slocum's landmark book, Sailing Alone Around the World, and uh, for many years my dream was to follow his path. Uh, In college, I was on the sailing team, and uh, during the summer months, I taught sailing at the Houston Yacht Club in Texas. 
Later, I sailed the Pacific in a square-rigged sailing ship under the command of the uh, famous British sea captain, Alan Villiers. Then I joined the Navy and uh, spent a great deal more time at sea. And even after leaving the Navy and returning to Houston, where I finished law school and began practicing, I couldn't shake my dream of a solo sailing adventure. But late one night, as I was once again talking with my mentor about this dream, he said it was time to put up or shut up and that he would put up the money for me to make this solo voyage. It was a real moment of truth for me because uh, I then realized that, well, the bottom line for me was the fact that I simply didn't have the courage, the immense amount of courage that would be required to set out all alone in a small sailboat and attempt to cross an ocean. Just the thought of being alone, uh, completely isolated from human companionship for several months, not to mention the horrific dangers that the open ocean poses to a small boat, well, that reality check hit hard, and I realized that I just didn't have the right stuff to undertake such a perilous journey. Now, uh, fast forward to 2010, and uh, I remember reading about a young German woman named Janice Jacate who was about to row... Yes, I said row across the Atlantic from Portugal to Barbados, which is a distance of uh, around 6,500 kilometers, and she's going to do it by herself. Now, just think about this. Uh, Month after month after month, all by yourself, often in 10-foot seas, rowing and rowing. There was no support boat to provide food and water and, most importantly, companionship. She was totally on her own, and uh, yet after three months, she made it. I can still remember reading that she uh, actually made it and just being totally amazed. Needless to say, uh, when I realized that this was the same person who had just sent me a friend request on Facebook, uh, well, (laughs) I was like an overjoyed little boy. Uh, But then uh, after we exchanged a couple of emails, I was even more excited to hear from her because not only did she accomplish a feat that, uh, well, I consider equivalent to climbing Mount Everest without oxygen, Hey, get this, she's a fellow Saloner. You know, uh, it's always fun for me to hear from our fellow Saloners who listen to these podcasts at work or in some unusual place, but Janice's story is uh, really going to be hard to beat. Uh, Here's part of what she told me. As you know, I spent a few months alone at sea, and my big iPod broke on the first day. There was not much music left. But your podcast was on my remaining mobile. Must have been important to me. I listened to it, well, let's say, a lot. While rowing, while cooking, while eating, while sleeping, during days, at night, when I was euphoric, and even in fear. I am pretty sure there are few people who spent so much time listening to it over and over and over again. To sum it all up, your podcast made my days and nights especially when I woke up that night after nights of sleep deprivation and my squeaking rudder was talking to me. Janice, 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 culture is not your friend. (laughs) McKenna was with me, sort of. I had a lot of time to think out there, and it was very inspiring to think after listening to your podcast. Thank you, Lorenzo. This row was pretty much a three-months meditation trip, eye-opening. Sometimes my thoughts were overwhelming, And then your podcast was a big help. I was alone out there, but I realized I was not alone with my thoughts. Thank you. Love, Janice. Well, I'm sure you can imagine how deeply that touched me. And 
While I sincerely appreciate all of the kind words that uh, Janice and the other saloners have had to say about these podcasts, I think that by knowing about my relationship to the sea and to people who test themselves against it, well, I think that then you can understand why Janice's story touches me so. But there's one more hyperlink to click here. You see, when I first made this connection with Janice this week, I was uh, already thinking about my birthday and, uh, of course, about my mother. But in all these years, the one person that I've never properly honored is my mother's mother, my grandmother, Margaret Junkersfeld Fox, another German woman of great personal courage. And somehow, Janice's story brought my dear German grandmother back to my mind. I won't go into her whole story now, but it is important for me to tell this small piece of it since, uh, well, ultimately I'm really doing these podcasts so that by the time my grandchildren are old enough to want to know a little about me and our family history, there will be some kind of a record of my personal stories. As you know, uh, I always talk about being Irish, and uh, both of my grandfathers were Irish, but both of my grandmothers were German, and I feel that I've never done justice to my German heritage. Uh, someday I'll probably tell you a few stories about my Grandpa Fox, and you'll better understand why the Irish influence in our family is so strong. Unfortunately, it has uh, overshadowed my equally important German heritage and the debt of gratitude I owe to my mother's mother. You see, uh, I was conceived a few days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and not long after I was born, my dad was drafted into the Navy. And so my mother and I moved into her parents' house. Before long, my dad was shipped off to fight the war in the South Pacific, and my mother took a job at the Elgin Watch Factory, helping uh, to build bomb sites, I think. So that left my dear grandmother to become my primary caregiver. And so for the first three years of my life, it was my grandmother who bathed me, changed me, fed me, hugged me, and sang sweet German lullabies to me. Now, if you believe, uh, as, as I do, that the first three to six years of one's life is the time during which one's character is formed, then you can understand what a tremendous debt of gratitude I owe to that wonderful old German woman who had previously given birth to eight children of her own on a small farm in southern Illinois. By the time I arrived, uh, well, she'd already done more than her share of child-rearing, yet she devoted herself to caring for me at a time when my parents were both fully occupied by the war. Even yet today, uh, when I hear Christmas carols sung in German, well, a, uh, a huge wave of love just floods through me. And I'm certain that it's due to this wonderful woman who gave me so much of her time during what turned out to be her last three years of life. Sadly, uh, Grandma Fox, as we all called her, died in October of 1945, just a few months after the end of the war and before my father returned from the Pacific. She had done her part and more. So uh, that's kind of a long way, I guess, of getting around to thanking two of the most important women in my life, one of German stock and the other of German-Irish stock. As the good Dr. Leary said in his talk today, there's a lot of mingling of genes here in the U.S., and in my case, it was a very fortunate combination indeed. So uh, thanks for listening to my little tale. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.